Bill said that we were after solid truth to feed our faith and sustain us during times that are hostile to faith. And I think that God in his kindness has given us that gift, that he has fed our faith. I know that he's fed our family very well because we've sat on Sunday afternoons and talked about the sermon and our faith has grown as a result of studying 1 Peter together here on Sunday mornings at Cornerstone. As a matter of fact, I was thinking as, as a person who grew up in the church and who has attended church his whole adult life that I do not remember a particular sermon series that seemed to be more especially suited for the current events of our lives than this one from 1 Peter. It's a reminder, I think, that God's Holy Spirit is speaking to us from the pages of the Bible and that God loves us and that He is involved in our lives. He is ministering to you through His Word. So it's just been such a blessing for for me and for our family to to sit there just like you week after week and receive all of this grace as our brothers have been preaching to us from 1 Peter. Well, last Sunday's sermon seemed very, very climactic, actually, ending with that beautiful doxology and verse 11 of chapter 5 of of praise to to Jesus Christ. And in contrast, these three verses that we're about to read together seem like something of a postscript, maybe just a little bit of necessary housekeeping as Peter ties up the letter. But despite that, I think you're going to see that there is some real treasure in here for your soul. So if you would, please... Follow along with me in your Bibles as I read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. This is the Word of God. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray just one more time. Father, I thank you so much for this, your word. I thank you that you have given it to us for our good, and I pray now that you might open wide the eyes of our hearts so that we will see wonderful things from your word. Do that, Lord, we pray for your glory and for our good this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Two English Protestant pastors, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were executed in England in the 1550s during the reign of Queen Mary. They'd been sentenced to death because they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and because they believed in the authority of the Bible. And after a a trial and some public humiliation, the two men 
continued to refuse to deny what they had been teaching. So they were taken to a public square and tied to a post. They were given one last chance to deny their confidence in the Bible and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they refused to do that. So fire was set at their feet. And as the flames began to come up, Ridley, one of the two, began to waver just a little bit. And I, I can't blame him for doing that. But his friend encouraged him with these words. He said, take courage, Master Ridley, and play the man. For today we will light together such a candle in England as the fire will never be put out. And with that encouragement, the two men stood firm and they bravely gave their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whenever I hear a story like that, I have to ask myself, how could they do that? How could they be so brave? Well, the first answer, of course, is that they had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They belonged to Christ and they knew that they were headed for a heavenly home. And so they were able to stand firm because of their confidence in Christ and in the gospel. But also in the case of these two men, I think it helped that they could stand together. They could stand together as brothers in the Lord. Now it's true, as, as we've studied First Peter together, I think we've thought a little bit about how as Christians in our world today, we are, we're living in a culture that is increasingly hostile to our faith. Having said that, I really don't think any of us are going to face what Latimer and Ridley did, or at least not many of us. But it's true, though, that we experience suffering in this life. Many of you have suffered. You've, you've suffered physically. You've suffered in relationships. You've suffered because of your sin and the sin of, of other people. You've, 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 you've suffered in, in life. And it's so good for us to know that whatever comes in life, Peter has taught us that we have a living hope through the resurrected Christ. And we enjoy the grace of God. In fact, because we enjoy the true grace of God, we can stand firm together in the face of suffering. That, by the way, is our, our main point this morning. Because we enjoy the true grace of God, we must stand firm together. Now, I want to take just a few moments explaining that, that main point, And then I have three points of application to draw out of that and out of our text this morning. In verse 12, right in the middle of that verse, Peter says, I've written to you briefly exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Now when we read that, we need to ask, what is this that is the true grace of God? And the answer is, this entire letter of 1 Peter is representing to us the true grace of God. So Peter here, as he wraps up, He's referring back to everything that he has taught us in this letter. Everything in 1 Peter. Every word of it is the true grace of God. 
the grace of God is evident throughout Peter's letter. It begins with grace. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And now it ends with grace in this fifth chapter, in the twelfth verse, the true grace of God. In between we learn the prophets prophesied by the grace that was to be ours. That's chapter 1 verse 10. Verse 10. And we learn that we should set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1 and verse 13. We see wives are heirs with their husbands of the grace of life in chapter 3. And in chapter 4 we see we're to be good stewards of God's grace. And last week we looked at that beautiful 10th verse of chapter 5 that says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We serve the God of all grace. Now back on August 30th in that first sermon, Bill said, by the way, I take notes, just, just so you know. Bill said, in 1 Peter, we will learn about God's wisdom, power, and especially His grace. And we have. Peter's letter highlights the graciousness of of our God. One commentator wrote, he began his epistle with grace, he finishes it with grace, he has besprinkled the middle with grace, that in every part he might teach that the church is not saved but by grace. Now there's so much more that I want to say about the grace of God. But I don't want to preach the whole sermon series again. And I know you don't want me to preach the whole sermon series again. But that's, that's there in verse 12. That's what this verse is. The true grace of God that Peter mentions in the 12th verse is a summary statement for everything we've learned from 1 Peter. Now he adds at the end of verse 12 this exhortation to stand firm in it, to stand firm in this true grace of God. Now, Peter's been telling us how to do that as well. We stand firm in the faith. We stand firm in the face of suffering, in the way we relate to authority, in the way we do our work, in the way we live as husbands or wives, in the way we resist the devil. We do all of these things, but not on our own. We do them by the true grace of God. Standing firm is the natural result or outflow of God's grace in our lives. Or we could put it this way. We don't stand firm and then get God's grace. We stand firm because we have God's grace actively working in our lives. So that's almost all then of, of the main point. Because we enjoy the true grace of God, we must stand firm... But I've included that we must do it together. And here's why. Our text this morning, 1 Peter 5, 12 through 14, is full of plural pronouns. You, you can't see it in your English translation. You could see it in a Greek Bible. Or you could see it if Peter had been from East Tennessee... 
because he would say, I've written briefly to y'all. Stand firm in it, y'all. She who is in Babylon sends y'all greetings. So, so you get the point. It's, it's written to a group of people. He's, he's speaking to and, and passing on this grace and giving this commandment to stand firm to a group of people. In fact, he, he, he has some new names that he introduces us to before and after that beautiful phrase, stand firm in the true grace of God. He's introducing us to some other people. And I think this is where we find some new treasure here, even as Peter is wrapping up this letter. He's going to show us yet one more parting gift of, of grace to encourage our faith. The gift is that we don't have to stand firm alone. Now, of course, our faith for salvation, your faith for salvation is personal. Only you can repent of your sin and trust in your Savior, Jesus Christ. But God in his kindness has given us many gifts, including giving us one another so that we might encourage one another to stand firm in God's true grace. So first of all this morning, we see that because we enjoy the true grace of God, we can stand firm helping one another. Peter, the Holy Spirit-inspired writer of this letter, was not a lone ranger. He worked with other Christians. And, and he's careful to make sure that we know it. He said in verse 12, I've written briefly to you. And he did write briefly. So he's not wasting words. I recognize that this is, this is a typical ending to a letter in the first century. And you might, you might be tempted to think there's not much here. But this is the word of God. And he's given it to us for our good. And so he wants us to know. He's being very intentional to make sure that he, we know he is not living the Christian life alone. Remember, this is a man who had denied the Lord. And I don't think that he is going to presume that he can be faithful in the ministry all by himself. So he recruits, he recruits other Christian people to help him to stand firm. Peter had many gifts. By reputation, he was one of the boldest of the Lord's disciples. He was loud-mouthed and he was eager to rise up and brave to wade in. And although sometimes it got him in trouble, it also served him well in ministry. You can see him out on the street in Jerusalem pointing, well, I always think he's pointing his finger. I guess I don't know that part. But he's out on the streets in Jerusalem and he's looking at the crowd and he's saying, you crucified your Savior, now repent and believe. And a little while later, he's before the, the Supreme Court of the, the nation and he's saying, you know, it's better for us to obey God rather than to obey you. He could be so bold. It was a gift from the Lord and God used it. But like everyone, Peter had weaknesses. We read in Galatians 2 about a time when he was behaving in a legalistic way and another famous apostle, Paul, rebuked him for his, for his sin. Also, not like Paul, 
Peter didn't have a, a background in ministry work. He, he was a fisherman. You know, I, I really think that too much has been made of the accusation that the chief priests make in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 where they call Peter unschooled because he, he, wasn't, he wasn't ignorant. He was a businessman. He could speak and read and write Greek probably. And he, he probably knew some uh, Aramaic and Hebrew. So in a sense, he knew a lot more than most of us do, right? Nevertheless, New Testament scholars tell us that the Greek that's used in this letter we're studying, 1 Peter, is excellent Greek. Scholarly even. Better than the Greek in 2 Peter. How is that possible? Well, Peter tells us himself how it's possible at the beginning of verse 12. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him... I have written to you briefly. This man, Sylvanus, he's not a Jew. He's a Roman citizen. He's the same person called Silas in the book of Acts. And he even helped Paul write a couple of letters, First and Second Thessalonians. He had been with Paul in prison in the city of Philippi where they were preaching the gospel. He had been beaten up even and suffered for the faith that he was preaching. And now here he is helping Peter. He, he knew also the recipients of this letter that, that Peter wrote to. The people in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. He had been there in that region as a missionary. You can read all about him in Acts chapter 15 and 16. I, I kind of wish that we knew the backstory here. I don't know how it is that Silas is no longer working with Paul, but he's working with Peter. But it's pretty great that, that here he is supporting Peter in his ministry and helping Peter to stand firm. Now another man is mentioned here by Peter is in verse 13. He refers to him as Mark, my son. Not really his biological or adopted son, but it's a term of endearment that he uses for the young man John Mark, who we know well because of our sermon series last year from the Gospel of Mark. Mark wrote down Peter's eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So just notice that that Peter lived the Christian life with others. He recognized that he needed help. And he's, he's encouraging us. You can just hear Peter's voice now speaking through this letter, through the centuries, to all of his friends, including to you, telling you to stand firm in the grace of God. He's encouraging us to stand firm. And he knew that he needed to be encouraged to stand firm in God's grace as well. Charles Plum was a Navy pilot. He flew 75 successful missions before being shot down over Vietnam. He parachuted out of his plane, uh, survived, was taken captive, and put in a POW camp for six years. After being repatriated to the United States, he was sitting in a restaurant with his wife, eating dinner one day, when someone walked up to him and said, You're, you're Charles Charles Plum, you, you uh, got shot down over Vietnam, right? And, and Charles said, well, yes, yeah, that's me. How do, how do you know me? 
And the man said, well, I was on the, the carrier, Kitty Hawk, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure that I packed your parachute. I guess it worked. Charles was so, so convicted by this. He, he thought he had never considered the role that this man played in his life. And, and he recognized that he would never have survived coming out of that plane if it weren't for this guy that he had never even thought about before. And he was so convicted about this that he began to write and he began to speak on the topic of who's packing your parachute. His, his point is that we need help from other people and that we ought to be helping other people. I think this ought to be obvious to Christians more than anybody else. Because when we are effectually called to faith in Jesus Christ, one of the first things we realize is how incredibly needy we are. We need help. We need a Savior because we're bankrupt in our sin. We need grace from God in order to be, in order to be saved. And then once we've trusted Christ, we continue to stand in need of His grace. We need gifts from God and equipment from God for Christian living. And He gives them. He gives us many gifts of grace. We've got a lot of gifts of grace right here in this church. A lot of equipment, if you will, given to us by God to help us to stand firm. Some of those things are... I don't know, structural things. I'm searching for the right word. But we've got some structure here to help us stand firm. We've got community groups and foundry for men and legacy for women and biblical counseling and compassion ministry and all kinds of things. We gather together for worship every Sunday with the purpose of honoring God and encouraging one another to stand firm in the grace of God. There's all of, this, all of this structure here given to us to help build our faith and help us stand firm. And we can thank God for it. But ultimately, I think helping one another and encouraging one another in our faith is not about structure. It's about having a heart like the heart of our Savior Jesus. Mark, whom Peter mentions here, wrote for us, The words of Jesus in Mark 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And Peter in his letter tells us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. So one question for us this morning. Do you have a heart that desires to help your brothers and sisters stand firm in the faith? Are you part of of a group of believing friends like Peter, Sylvanus, and Mark were? Because you need to be. And I need to be. We need to encourage one another. And by God's grace, we can help each other stand firm. Secondly, because we enjoy the true grace of God, we can stand firm accepting one another. I'm using this word except on purpose. I was a little bit hesitant. I even flipped around in a thesaurus for a while trying to come up with something better. Because the world, the world now, our, our culture 
misuses this word and in a way that I think is spiritually dangerous. The culture wants us to accept almost everything and everyone without qualification. But when I'm using this this term here that we should be accepting to one another, I'm wanting to redeem the word by qualifying it with everything we've learned from 1 Peter about the true grace of God to us. And so to that end, I want to encourage other Christians to accept one another. Even those who are different than us. Or those who have failed us. We we ought to be receiving, receiving all those people whom God has called to himself with the goal of cheering them on for their good and encouraging them to stand firm in God's grace. Not every believer looks the same. They certainly don't all look like you or like me. We don't all have the same background. We don't all have the same vocabulary. At least not at first. We're different than one another. This is nothing new. Silvanus, who we meet in verse 12, as we've said, he was not a Jew. You know, tensions between Jews and Gentiles in the first century were just about as bad as anything that you can imagine regarding race relations today. Peter himself, meeting a group of Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, he said, you know, it's really unlawful and wrong for me to be with you. But God is showing me something different. So God was working in Peter's life and helping him him to grow and helping him to understand that other people were were wonderful creatures of God made in the image of God and that other Christian people were standing firm in the same grace that that he was. Peter wants us to understand. He wants us to, to, to be willing to accept and receive different kinds of people. And so he's very intentional in verse 12 to say, by Silvanus, Whom I regard as a faithful brother, I am writing to you. Here's a Hebrew man. He's calling this this Gentile his brother. He wants us to be ready to come alongside others who are different than us. To accept them. We ought to encourage them to stand firm. But he also wants us to receive, accept, and encourage Others who have failed. Maybe even those who have failed us. I love this ministry team here that we see in 1 Peter 5. Because it includes both Peter and Mark. And the reason I love the two of them doing ministry. I'm pretty sure that if they were sitting in here with us this morning. Neither of them would mind me pointing out that they had both been failures. They had both failed. They they failed the Lord. They failed in ministry. Peter, you know, denied the Lord. It's a very famous account. I won't go into that one. But Mark, some of us will remember this from a year or so ago. Mark was the cousin of Paul's ministry partner, Barnabas. 
And he went along with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And he served as part of the ministry team, at least until things got difficult. And they got to Perga and the, the ground there was hard and the work was looking hard. And so Mark ran home to his mom in Jerusalem. He certainly wasn't standing firm that day. And how serious was this? How serious was this failure? Well, it was so serious that when it came time for a second missionary journey, Paul wouldn't bring Mark along. In fact, he even dumped Barnabas because Barnabas was insisting on bringing Mark along. And you know what's interesting is the, the, the replacement that Paul picked for Mark after Mark failed is this guy right here in verse 12, Silvanus or Silas. I hope, by the way, that you're, you're not missing how interesting that is. Because here's Mark now, who had failed before, but been restored at some point. Along with Peter, who had failed before and was now restored and these, these two guys are doing effective ministry. They're writing the Bible, folks. I mean, I guess it doesn't get much better than that, right? So they've got an effective ministry. Even though in the past they had failed, they've been forgiven. And now they're standing firm and they're standing firm together. And they're doing this ministry. And, and also they're working with, with Silas, the guy who had replaced Mark when he previously fa failed. And here they are now together, shoulder to shoulder for the gospel. That's gospel power right there. That's what Jesus Christ does. He, he heals us of our sins. And, and he, he forgives us and he restores us. And he, he gives us hope and he gives us life and he gives us a ministry. It's beautiful. Even, even Paul, he, he forgave Mark. And he writes in 2 Timothy 4, he said, Mark is useful for me in ministry. By the true grace of God, sinners and failures are accepted into his kingdom. And so we, his people, we ought to be ready to accept sinners and failures as well. And encourage, encourage them. Encourage your brothers and sisters when they stumble and when they fail, fail and when they sin. So say, get up, brother. Get up, sister. Come on. Stand firm. You should accept those who have failed us, even those who have disappointed us. We should also accept the fact that the body of Christ is a worldwide body. Now, I think the American church has figured this out, like in the past 10 or 20 years, right? We are not the center of the universe. Well, who is this lady in verse 13? The lady from Babylon. Well, it's not... Admittedly, 100% clear, but the majority of commentators are going to tell us that this is a reference to the Christian church in the city of Rome. John the Apostle does a similar thing in 2 John. He refers to an elect lady, and he's talking about a church. So Peter's using that same kind of phrase, the, the, the elect, she who is chosen, she who is elect. Babylon, Rome was often referred to by the first century Jews and Christians as Babylon because Rome had conquered the world. Unbelieving Rome had conquered the world. And also Peter, there's this theme throughout the letter of, of living in exile, 
living as, as strangers in a foreign land. And perhaps this is a reference to the fact that the children of Israel had been exiled to Babylon in the Old Testament. They would have known that. So, so all of that to say, really what, what Peter is doing here is he is saying, the church in Rome sends you greetings. Now, here's where this gets really cool. Because you have Mark and Peter, who we've said have been failures, but they've been forgiven. And they're doing ministry together, these two Jewish guys, they're doing ministry together in Rome. So you have a Jewish man from Jerusalem at a church in Rome sending a letter to Christian churches in modern-day Turkey, and he's sending it probably by the hand of a Gentile man named Silas. You know, in the first century, this kind of forgiveness and acceptance and cooperation among different kinds of people across different cultures and in different regions was mind-blowing. And I really want to suggest that it's mind-blowing today, too, when Christians do this. You know, the Christian church has something in, in, uh, in, in the family of God as brothers and sisters in, uh, in Christ. We have something that the world just doesn't understand. They just don't understand it, and it's so beautiful. It's no wonder that Peter says that unbelievers are going to ask us about the hope that we have. Because it is so different and it is so mind-blowing what we have in Christ Jesus. Jackie Robinson was the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. So I'm told. Not really a big baseball fan. I'm a fan of this story though because it was really hard for him to play baseball in the 1940s as a, a black man. He had to endure insults. And, and heckling, death threats even. His own teammates had a petition because they didn't want to be able to play with him. And the story is told at one, one point he was standing on the field and as he stood there he was being yelled at and he was being insulted by a group of, of hecklers in the stands during a game. And while this was going on, one of his white teammates, Pee Wee Reese, he walked over and he just stood next to Jackie Robinson. And Robinson wrote about this in his biography. He wrote, Pee Wee kind of sensed the sort of helpless, dead feeling in me, and he came over and stood beside me for a while. He didn't say a word. But he looked over at the chaps who were yelling at me and just stared. He was standing by me, I could tell you that, and I will never forget it. Robinson, of course, went on to inspire millions by breaking racial barriers. But one of the things that helped him along the way was a friend who stood next to him and who encouraged him to stand. There are, as you know, you don't need me to tell you the news, right? There, there are many, many divisions in our culture today, including racial divisions other kinds too, socioeconomic and political and, and so on. But born-again Christians, we, we are united in Christ. Peter gets it in there in the last two words of, of the letter, right? He says, we are, we are in Christ. 
Every one of us who've trusted Jesus Christ, united in him. I think it was Dr. Tripp who, who said that there, you know, there really are only two great races, right? There are those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And there are those who don't. And those of us who do believe are calling everyone to come and join us in this royal priesthood and holy nation. Humility before Christ equals unity among people. So we don't need, as Christians, we don't need to be pushing anyone away because they're different than we are. Or because they've let us down in the past. Or because they failed or sinned or disappointed us at some, at some point. Instead, we need to be encouraging their faith. Encouraging them to stand firm in the true grace of God. And finally, because of the true grace of God, we can stand firm loving one another. Peter is encouraging his readers here at the end of the letter to cultivate friendships. So verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, the kiss of love was a very ordinary greeting in, Romans time, in Roman times. Uh, probably a kiss on each cheek in greeting. You know, there's still cultures and people who do this it always kind of freaks me out by the way but I guess you can imagine it as like you know it's a handshake or or a fist bump or, or whatever it is that's a sign of of welcome my sons have been trying to teach me to do this bro hug thing you know but I I always mess it up it's always really super awkward when when I do it but I get the point, you know. I mean, the point of these things isn't to do some ritual or ceremony or just work on your manners. But the point is to encourage relationships. That's certainly Peter's point right, right here. He, he is trying to encourage genuine friendship among brothers and sisters. We, we need friendship. We need Christian friends. We need to encourage Christian friends like, like Peter does. You know, this is a personal thing for Peter, this letter that he writes. You know, it's 2,000 years old, but it's still personal. God's Holy Spirit has inspired it. And God is personally here speaking to us and encouraging us. You can hear the voice of our friend Peter. Stand firm, friends. Stand firm, sister. Stand firm, brother. Stand Firm in the grace of God. We need friends to encourage us like that. And we need to be those kinds of friends. We need to be praying for our friends. Peter, he, he fires off just this, this little prayer at the end of the letter. I don't know if you, you, you thought of it that way. It's a prayer at the end of verse 14. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So he's written all this to us. All of this grace. All this good stuff. And then you, you can just hear him. And, and Lord, bless them with peace. Bless them with peace. We need other Christians to encourage us in this way. And we need to encourage other Christians to stand firm in the grace of God. Had a friend in high school named Andrew. He's kind of an unusual guy. I mean, he, he, had, a, he had an earring that was a little cage. And he would put bugs in it. Okay, <clears throat> so I'm not being unkind when I say he's an unusual guy. Well, on one occasion, I, I was standing by my locker and a group of boys came up to me and they were not happy, man. They were mad. They were accusing me of things. Uh, they were all uh, 
you know, like Jake Simmons style, you know, the, on the football team kind of guy. And I was even, you know, smaller and nerdier then than I am now. And, and I, you know, I hadn't really done, I was a bad kid at lots of times in high school, but I hadn't really done anything to these guys. I don't know what their problem was. I think they had me mixed up with someone else, but they were threatening me and it was scary. I thought they were going to do me like real harm right there. One, for, for some reason though, after lots of threats and scary stuff, they, they walked off. And when they were gone, my, my friend Andrew, the bug guy, he, he walked up to me and he said, man, I, I thought we were going to get beat up. And, and I said to him, what, what, did they threaten you too? And he said, no, but I was standing over there listening and, you know, I wasn't going to just leave you here alone. And I thought, That's, that is so sweet. I've never forgotten that. My weird friend. Was, was ready to stand there with me in a fight that was not his own. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, are, are we friends like that for our Christian brothers and sisters? Peter has made it very clear to us that we are living as exiles in a hostile land. We're, we're going to have enemies. Enemies of our faith. We read that, that the devil is prowling around out there as our enemy. So we need friends. And we need to be good friends. We need one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to pray for one another. If we're going to stand firm together, we have to love one another. Don't let your Christian friends go down alone. Stand with them and encourage them to stand firm on the foundation of God's true grace. So in this text, we're encouraged to stand firm. And we see these Christian people, Peter, Silvanus, Mark, a church in Babylon, churches in Asia Minor. We see them helping each other and accepting each other and loving one another. But of course, all of this is made possible only by the true grace of God. We can stand firm in His grace because Jesus Christ stood in our place on the cross. He's the reason that we help each other, accept one another, and love one another. He's our firm foundation. In His true grace, we can stand firm together. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for this beautiful letter. I thank you, Father, for these 25 times that we've been able to study it together as a church. I pray, Lord God, that we wouldn't just be receiving these words as words only. That we wouldn't just be hearers of this, your word, but that we would be doers of it. That we would do it, Lord, by loving one another. Even people who are different than us, by forgiving even those who fail us, Lord, there should be no grudges among Christians. Help us to be forgiving people, Lord. But more than anything, help us to stand firm in the true grace of God, Lord. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.